proper exploration of slavery, uh, not just at the founding era, but really as it persisted uh, throughout the ancient world and after the founding of America, uh, within its borders, uh, and especially around the world, is this, this understanding of what is natural slavery. Uh, now, there were many different kind of arguments that emerged that were loosely predicated on the same idea. But really, you have to start with uh, Aristotle. Uh, that is, he, he became kind of the, the go-to uh, signature figure for natural slavery. However, like many instances of, of historical relevancy, uh, a large portion of his understanding is omitted uh, from this conversation, especially as it was utilized uh, in attempts to justify slavery uh, post-founding era uh, and thereafter. Uh, now, the first thing to kind of understand about natural slavery is that it, the whole idea uh, automatically has a sense of credibility in that it explains and answers why has slavery always existed. You know, one has to realize that slavery was not new to the uh, British colonies, it was not new to the South, it was not new to, not new to America, uh, but had been a firmly entrenched institution uh, for as long as we have written records. Uh, 3,500 years ago, uh, the Sumer, civil, the civilization of Sumer had slaves. It was in their laws. Hammurabi's Code uh, talks about um, the, the legal definition of slaves. Uh, and, of course, Rome, at one point, uh, actually had about 4.5 million slaves at its uh, peak ownership, which defeats the United States, who came in at 4 million slaves. <clears throat> so that begs the question, well, what exactly is natural slavery? Well, if we actually uh, are honest and uh, with with the Aristotelian concept of natural slavery, uh, he was seeking to explain a very specific situation. Uh, so, and this is dispersed throughout uh, his politics and his ethics, but fundamentally what natural slavery was to Aristotle was a symbiotic relationship where the master and slave both benefited and where the slave in particular was able to live a life that was uh, at a, a far greater standard than he would otherwise have had. Now, we can hear echoes of the positive good argument posited by Southern uh, slaveholders, you know, the Democrat Party uh, throughout the antebellum period in this argument, and that's largely where they kind of commandeered it from. And that's usually where the conversation ends in discussions of natural slavery, but that's not where it ended for Aristotle. So he clarifies in numerous instances that this relationship was only good if the master was someone who was intended to be in that position and was not by nature themselves a slave, and that the one held in the condition of slave was also by nature a slave and not meant to uh, govern or including governing themselves. And so the way Aristotle draws this distinction is on the capability of individuals. If someone is capable of self-governance, if someone is capable of leaving, living a good life and pursuing those things that create a good life, then they are not, by nature, a slave. And that to put such a person as a slave was unjust and really socially uh, corruptible. Now, notice 
it's not uh, one of the more interesting things. It's not how Aristotle explains natural slavery, but what isn't involved in his definition. Uh, there is no mention of ethnicity, certainly no mention of race. Something is trivial that didn't even exist to them at the time. Uh, not even, kind of surprisingly, any mention of nationality. Uh, of course, there's a larger discussion with how national identity frames into slavery. Uh, but his idea of a natural slave uh, was really kind of a, a modernization of something that had always existed. And in his conception of it, it was only just and good pursuant to those uh, qualifications. And what's very interesting about uh, the theory that he puts forward for natural slavery is that it's very much uh, the case that someone who may be by nature a slave today may not be tomorrow. That self-improvement, education, acquisition of skills, and, uh, of course, self-governance, uh, or logos, uh, the ability to reason at a higher level, those would redefine someone away from, from slavery. Uh, and this translates directly into the conversation of slavery in America, not just, uh, I mean, the colonial era, era founding era, antebellum, you name it. Uh, first, with the founders who recognized that education and vocational training was an essential skill set. Uh, that's why they uh, provided for that for their slaves and their wills, or even while they were still alive. And that's also why uh, southern slaveholders generally suppressed education and literacy among slaves. So even though uh, the slave practice continued to be uh, inappropriately labeled as, as a natural uh, kind of extension of Aristotelian slavery, it was inaccurate. And it was inaccurate uh, and really dishonest because the blacks were capable of self-governance. And then those that were not were artificially held in that position, uh, both as a consequence of slavery, which was universally recognized as a moral uh, contagion and a suppressant. Uh, you know, even, even the founder of several founders, including Jefferson Adams and Franklin uh, and George Washington, came to understand that you know, those things most often negatively attributed to slaves was the product of social conditioning, nothing racial. And of course, at this time, social conditioning wasn't even a phrase that existed. So these founders were observing these things that had yet to be defined, and they were understanding them. So I think that that really s speaks testaments to their capabilities. Uh, and Aristotle uh, did much the same thousands of years earlier. Uh, and we see this story played out and exemplified later in American history as well. Of course, the, the amazing story of Frederick Douglass, uh, self-taught, uh, actually really through uh, guile, really, as far as his acquisition of the and control of the alphabet. Uh, and, of course, Booker T. Washington, uh, who, which I argue is the greatest civil rights figure uh, who's ever existed, perhaps rivaled with Frederick Douglass. But I would still argue uh, it was, it was uh, Mr. Booker T. Washington uh, and a large part of his uh, Tuskegee-Hampton model for education recognized that this universal truism that in order for uh, anyone, not just blacks, but anyone to function in society uh, had a certain level of education, skills, employability, and dignity 
the importance of character uh, that became so became in vogue to neglect that the individual had any responsibility uh, to the community or to society, that there were obligations to existing in a free society. Instead, it just became, well, what can you do for me? What do I get from you? Because I just happen to exist in this society. And so the, the Aristotelian concept of natural slavery, which for our conversations uh, is what I refer to uh, with natural slavery, uh, you know, later, later slavers in the South and other places uh, attempted again to kind of co-opt and hijack this idea, but it, it, it's disingenuous. Uh, and so like most things, uh, the words of Aristotle and his ideas were just kind of selectively uh, chosen, you know, they picked certain lines, omitted others, and by doing so, they said, hey, look, you know what, uh, whites are naturally the masters and blacks are naturally slaves. Uh, no discussion, of course, of capacity. And no discussion, really, of any characteristics. It was a racial paradigm, uh, which held no sway to Aristotle or any of the uh, ancient philosophers, uh, of which many discussed slavery. But even it came to be recognized as, as an issue. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the problems in Rome and Athens uh, really came to highlight that Slavery really was not, at a certain point, even tenable socially. Uh, of course, Seneca the Younger, in his famous letter 47, uh, wrote about the, uh, the immorality of slavery. And that also translated later on into the founding era, where even early on, uh, one of the biggest uh, issues in colonial America, and why many colonies actually fought against slavery, is that it destroyed any hope of a fair labor market. Uh, that's why northern states were the home of immigration and southern states were not. Uh, there were simply no jobs because paying somebody zero dollars, you can't compete with that. Uh, so the, the whole idea of natural slavery undergirded the institution uh, really since the earliest times. But it's in Aristotle in particular, among other great historical figures, is often maligned as kind of this uh, vehement slave, pro-slavery person. And, and really he was not, just like many others at the time were not. They were attempting to define uh, an institution that seemed to exist forever. Uh, and in many respects was no different than uh, kingship uh, or monarchy or uh, majoritarian tyranny. It was just something that was inherent in the human experience. Uh, and so they put their minds to work trying to understand how it worked uh, and why without really, and with, with even addressing some of the moral issues with it. You know, for example, if, if somebody could live a better life outside of slavery, then it was unjust and moral to hold them to that station. So later, uh, Calhounists, the positive good arguments, and really kind of the principal arguments that even uh, bled into the segregation era or the Jim Crow era, uh, and undergirds really kind of the natural, or the, the kind of the assumptions made in a lot of policies involving affirmative action are all predicated on this idea that entire groups of people, uh, based on nothing more than their skin color, they have a kind of a deterministic variable at work there. You know, by virtue of being X, then you are by consequence Y. Uh, really without offering any other 
any variation to that formula. So it's interesting to see how this this kind of uh, perversion of Aristotelian natural slavery was uh, was changed to define and justify an institution. Uh, you know, much like the Declaration was uh, initially decried and then just simply redefined as a pro-slavery instrument uh, whenever it suited the purposes of the Democratic Party uh, in the antebellum era and afterwards. Uh, natural slavery uh, was much the same. Uh, the problem with natural slavery in particular, though, is that it held with it the authority of some pretty big names, including Aristotle, uh, one of the the great triumvirate of Western philosophers with Socrates and Plato. So natural slavery, uh, very integral into the overall history of uh, really the world and how slavery was addressed. Uh, Actually so far reaching was Aristotle and his theories that he was cited by numerous uh, authoritative Muslim scholars uh, who also... uh, kind of maligned blacks as inferior, uh, incapable of self-governance, uh, you know, and a large part of that was was through environmental determinism, uh, which emerged later on. So uh, it's just a, a, an element, I guess, of the kind of larger maelstrom of things that are not just an element of, of kind of human philosophy forever, but specific to slavery as well. It was uh, perverted to justify it, and then was later applied to many of the uh, of similar policies that became the governing political ideas of the time and sense. Uh, so uh, another element, of course, is environmental determinism, which we will discuss here uh, shortly.